Welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington. All right, so Great. I'm here with uh, Claire Corthel at the Wrangle Conference in San Francisco. Hey, Claire, great to finally meet you in person. Hi, great to meet you in person too, Sam. Yeah, so um, uh, what's particularly exciting about getting to, to talk to you uh, is I talked about your post a few, I guess it was one like the second, uh, the second podcast I did. Uh, you wrote that post around that same time on the hybrid AI. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I thought that that was a really interesting post. And it was one of the things that I talked about on the podcast. So I'd be looking forward to catching up with you on that, uh, as well as kind of getting an update on what you're up to and what you've been, you know, digging into. So uh, maybe we can talk a little bit about your background and kind of how you got into data science and machine learning. Yeah, not a problem. So I, I'm a little bit weird because I'm not a theoretical physicist or, you know, some of, some of us in data science are applied physicists too, but I'm not in that camp. Uh, I actually started with uh, product design and came into it from that perspective. So I was actually working uh, on a very small product, kind of a startup within a startup when I decided that I wanted to understand more about our users and what they were doing. So I went to the parent company and I said, hey, I I don't know much about this, but I think I should look into our user logs and try and understand more about how people are accessing the product and what might be happening and do some basic analytics. And the head of engineering kind of looked at me and he goes, I, what logs? (laughs) And I thought, oh, well, this is, this is problematic. How am I going to learn about my users if I don't have that? And it kind of started me on this long rabbit hole, which has now turned into my career. Um, and I actually very much overshot that. I, I did not end up in analytics. I work on uh, machine learning applications and that problem space now. But um, I came at it from that perspective. And at that point, I was uh, really looking for a new direction and decided to invest uh, the next seven months in learning everything I could to uh, prepare myself for a career in data data science. So I built a curriculum because at the time, um, I think Insight had just started. So this was early 2013. Okay. Uh, There weren't any academies that focused on this. So I built a curriculum around that and uh, published it on GitHub. And that's become a popular resource for people who want to get into data science and understand what it's all about, because there wasn't really a roadmap at that point. But um, after that... Open Data Science Masters, is that what that's the called? The Open Source Data Science Masters, okay. yes. The the <laughs> uh, very descriptive, unimaginative name that I gave it. So... <laughs> It's exactly what it is, though. So uh, that was a, a really challenging um, project to work on. And I'm really happy that I was able to put that out in the open source world. And um, to give you a preview, I'm, I'm working on a second version. I There were breaking changes that floated up from Coursera, who took a bunch of their courses offline. And um, yeah, it's, oh. so, yeah, I, I'm working on uh, bubbling up those dependency problems and fixing them. Okay. Um, so after that, I went to a company called Mattermark. Um, they're actually around the corner from where we are now. And they try to measure private company growth. So very similar to what Bloomberg does for public market companies. And sure. um, 
at the time when I joined that company, the CTO was ready to divest in machine learning. He was convinced it was not going to solve the problems that they were facing. It wasn't going to pose a reasonable um, set of solutions for um, their near-term and mid-term goals as a company. And I, on my first day, designed the key components of how we would move that strategy forward. And um, that company now has a, I think it's a 10-person team working on uh, data analysis and machine learning, and they're going strong. And I um, I moved on from that to consulting about a year and a half ago and have been working with companies of various stages and sizes on getting started with data science or getting started with new functions within data science that they want to spin up on. So okay. helping them understand how to get from A to B and what it's going to cost them for uh, a solution space that they're investigating. There's a lot there to uh, to dig into on the yeah. open source data uh, science masters. Now, was that a little bit of kind of building the building the parachute as you're jumping out of the plane, or building the airplane as you're taking off? That kind of thing, right. where you were learning or as collecting you went laundry along? as I was falling out of the sky. I guess <laughs> <laughs> something like that. There's a there's an appropriate analogy right, there somewhere. Right, I like that uh, absolutely. It was perhaps uh, most challenging because I had to rewrite it as I was going. So I would continually check in with people I knew in industry and try and navigate to figure out what, what skills were actually applicable, what kind of depth I needed to go in on particular, particular topics, what was actually key to understand. And um, to this day, this is something that I, I hear a lot about from people who are hiring managers that, when they try to hire people who are very fresh to the fields, sometimes they don't have um, the wealth of intuition distributed into the right places. So um, they may know how to build a model, but they don't know how to validate it. And they don't know perhaps how to um, test data or work with data sets that are very messy. There there are various um, kind of drawbacks to having uh, a self-guided education and, and having to retarget that as you go is, uh, is certainly challenging. So. And were you, did you learn yourself through a self-guided kind of approach? Did you collect all this by, you know, in the process of learning it or what was, I guess, what was the background that you brought to you know, mm-hmm. getting into data science? Where did you start? Yeah, I will be clear. So I, uh, I have a degree from Stanford in product design, but it's through a department called uh, science technology and society. And it's actually a hybrid, uh, engineering program. So you take two engineering okay. tracks at once, and then it ties together with this ex- ethics component, which is nice. part of the reason that I talk a lot about ethics publicly, okay. which um, we had we an STS at RPI also. Oh, that's great. That's great. They, they've snuck into various places. Yeah. We, it's a sister program to SimSys, which um, became a more known program um, recently uh, because one of the, the Instagram founders came from that program. Okay. In any case, very small program at that point in time. Now it's one of the biggest. And uh, I focused in uh, computer science and product design through mechanical engineering. So it was very product focused, but through those two lenses of engineering. So I came into this with a background in web stack engineering and UX and full digital product design. But I, I wasn't coming at it from having no programming experience. So moving into a Python workflow um, and using tools and technologies like SQL that I'd seen before was not not the primary challenge. Right. So I, I definitely wasn't starting from zero. 
like some people do. Yeah. Yeah. And how about the stats component? Where did that mm-hmm. come from? I had taken some stats classes in college, but there was actually one that I loved. And uh, the professor thought I was the weirdest person in his course, I'm sure, because it was a bunch of people who wanted to go into management consulting. It was a kind of operational okay. statistics class. Like, how do Got you it. understand how cars pass through four toll booths when you have, uh, you know, two of them open at any given time long? You know, yep. these kind of uh, convex optimization problems. Yep. And I thought it was just the most interesting stuff and I couldn't come up with an application that was anywhere close to a career that I thought I might have. I just had no idea how this stuff would be applicable. Same thing with linguistics. Uh I, for a long time, would read linguistics textbooks and um, read a lot of Noam Chomsky when I was in high school and and more theory behind it. Love that stuff. My parents thought I was going to major in it and I said, it's not applicable. I can't use it. Yeah of course, flash forward to several years later. And I'm actually working quite a lot with unstructured text. And um, Mm -hmm. that's actually the biggest request that I hear in the market uh, as a consultant. How do we work with text and understand it uh, through a lens that works for us and isn't just a word cloud or a count of various uh, themes coming up? How do we Mm -hmm. understand it from the perspective of uh, the customer service industry, or um, we saw a talk here earlier about data science and HR and understanding feedback. Mm-hmm. Those types of applications are becoming um, very popular and, and widely requested. Right. So things always come back, right? Yep. Uh, one of my favorite designers has, has this, uh, well, this thing that he paints on billboards. Um, this guy, Steven Sagmeister, he says, everything I do always comes back to me. Mm. And I think about this all the time because there are always these, these little things, these little vignettes that you take and you never quite know when you're going to come, come back to that and it's going to be relevant to what you're doing. Yeah. So, yeah. so you've built the, the open source data science masters for folks that are starting at zero and trying to work their way to or starting someplace yes. you know, and trying to work their way forward. Uh, what are, what are the things that you find folks struggle with the most? The biggest challenge for the curriculum and for people going through it right now, I will say this is the two-sided problem is that they, they can't, people can't find problems that are appropriately scoped to showcase their talent and the curriculum can't necessarily provide that right now. I have investigated how I might go about providing, you know, sample data sets and questions. Mm-hmm alongside them that would kind of give you a, a take-home package of something that would showcase your skills. Mm-hmm. But it it's actually a, a lot more work than you'd expect. And it's very difficult because it's, it's a scoping problem at its heart. You have to have something that has enough depth, but isn't overwhelming and can right. showcase a bunch of different skills. So it's, it's a big challenge for people to sell themselves through providing that type of uh, portfolio piece. Yeah. And at this point, I think Kaggle does a really good job of curating data sets and providing conversations around analysis and modeling and predictive algorithms and ways to uh, approach problems. And I usually direct people. I was that, going to ask you if, if Kaggle was one of the places that you point people. Yeah. Yeah. I think they do a really good job at that. So they, I mean, their, their entire model is built around that type of, um, that type of work appropriately scoping, um, 
scoping questions around a set of data and allowing right. people to work on it and sometimes rewarding them for that. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's interesting that the podcast has a lot of folks that are you know somewhere on that curve. Yep. And I, I hear from folks every once in a while, um, you know, asking about how they might apply, you know, how might, how might I apply machine learning mm-hmm. AI to, uh, you know, healthcare or some problem mm-hmm. that they have an interest in. Uh, and it's difficult to to manage that scope at a, as a beginner, in part because you yep. don't know what you don't know, right? Yep. Uh, but at the same time, you a lot of times when you go to some of the public forums where people are asking, you know, how do I how do I learn this stuff? You know, people will say, "Well, go, you know, take this Coursera course, that Coursera course, and then go work on a project." And the gap yeah. between take this Coursera course and then go work on a, you know, a pet project is actually pretty huge. <laughs> yes. Yes. And it's a gap that you have to fill with building analytical intuition, which is something that is very hard to teach, but mm-hmm. is very learnable. So there's that um, counterintuition there that it's something that you can learn and it's best learned from other people, but it's very hard to learn it from a book. Right. So um, I do encourage people to, to use that practice. And, you know, for example, looking at a Kaggle competition around healthcare data and uh, taking a stab at it without seeing what other people are working on, given a question, and then coming back to see how other people address that question. Very useful workflow and does provide you some of the like asynchronous communication that you would otherwise have yeah. um, in person in a company. The other thing that I, the other key component there that I think is uh, really helpful is to have questions that are actually appropriate for the data and to mm-hmm. be very strict about your own workflow when you're, when you're answering that question, because you can get lost in the weeds everywhere. Right. And right. in fact, I'd say most data science teams, their, their biggest struggle is um, not necessarily with structure, but with uh, the rigor of having questions that they can actually test and hypotheses that they mm. can actually test against. Yeah, And uh, I certainly do know teams that um, have a more R&D approach and that can lead you to interesting places, but it, it doesn't necessarily help you um, answer a question because you're not necessarily restricting yourself to that path. Yeah. 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 So you've got a teaching bent. You put together this set of resources mm-hmm. and then the natural step consulting, right? We're here teaching clients that are actually trying to build these teams. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. It is very natural. And I I think the, the biggest reward that I get in consulting is when I work with someone who's a little less technical or, or more distant from the data science and they start to understand and intuit as people who would be new to data science they start to into it about what's going on with the data and how you can answer the question with the data and why it's appropriate or not appropriate and what manipulations they need to make and what, you know, what type of data they need to make in, in uh, intuitions about um, what they can do with it. Mm-hmm. So that's really rewarding. I've had the pleasure of working with a couple of product teams and um, product teams are great because they, they have a vision for what they want as an outcome. And that Mm -hmm. outcome is really helpful, much like a a driving question or hypothesis to guide you through um, a set of possible solutions with a lot of rigor and direction. Mm -hmm. So that's been um, really rewarding to see product managers saying, hey, I think this will work because I know that it worked in this other case. And we learned about that a couple of weeks ago. And it's, it is very much like Mm -hmm. teaching. 
Now, knowing a little bit about your background now, I can almost imagine the context uh, out of which the hybrid AI uh, blog post, you know, came, you know, product teams telling you, oh, can we just throw AI at this and not have any humans in the loop? (laughs) Yeah. Did you hear a lot of that? I've definitely heard that. Like, um, well, we know that we have to have some mostly human approach and we can use some predictive technology alongside them for a while, but we're really shooting for hundred percent at the end. And that ultimate vision is very problematic because as I explained in, in the post and I, I can summarize that briefly, but um, hybrid AI in cases where you need people to look at data where you're not certain how to predict an outcome or, or classify or, whatever your, um, your objective is, mm-hmm. have them look at that poorly or less confidently predicted data and make their own uh, judgment about what should happen. Allowing that to happen incorporates the possibility of future outcomes and, and future inputs. So in cases, in cases where you haven't seen everything that you could possibly see because in the future there will be new and different options, it's only necessary that you would always involve people because you have to incorporate those new, those new opportunities and those new, um, those new possibilities. Mm-hmm. So I, I think tempering our expectations about how much work computers will do and what type of work they will do is uh, really key to building the right solutions because otherwise we, we don't have a good Pareto 80-20 approach to our problems where we can say, hey, let's set aside this part of the problem because we know it's always going to be too hard for the computer. It will cost us 80% of our time to solve mm-hmm. 20% of the problem and it doesn't actually make sense. Let's just route that to people. We might learn more about that problem space in the future, but we also know that there's there's kind of slop that we right. will always need to account for, and that's important. Um, and it and, sounds like you don't think we're anywhere near, you know, getting, closing that gap, getting to the humans out of the loop. It depends on the application you're looking at. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, we used a human in the loop system at Mattermark for uh, various tasks on the machine learning team. And we actually had um, people in-house in addition to um, some systems where we had outside labeling done. Um and we had used vendors for that type of thing. Mm-hmm. There are a couple um, good options there, but um, I think the the pragmatism on the shape of the solution, the solution space that's possible to achieve in a reasonable mm-hmm. amount of time, and any sort of reasonable cost for a solution, all drive us toward this hybrid. Um, case. And you also discover pretty interesting things when you use people um, or services that that have um, people labeling data or providing you feedback, Mm -hmm. because they will will give you more information than you asked for in some cases. Mm -hmm. And we actually have had people in the past come come back to us, find our email addresses. Uh, I, I don't think they were given them. So they, they actually went out and did research, mm-hmm. found out how to email us and said, Hey, you asked me this question. I actually think there's kind of an issue with how you phrased it. It doesn't fully address this other issue. Have you thought about that? I'm worried that I answered the question 
wrongly. Meaning these are people that were on your labeling team that felt so compelled. These are actually people that weren't, um, weren't even on the team. They were part of an outsourced group of people that were uh, paid to work on that data. So Mm -hmm. you, you learn a lot because you get more perspectives and more eyes on the data, which is, which is always a good thing. Uh, mm-hmm. especially when you're thinking about blind spots that you might have. Yeah, I thought even w- one of the uh, simple things that I thought was pretty interesting about that post was you presented some kind of broad brush stats, and I don't remember the specific stats about um, something along the lines of, you know, AI by itself right now, you know, a, 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 a machine learning solution can get to 90% accuracy for, you know, generalized speech interpretation, but in order to really be usable, it needs to be 98 or something like that. I forget the numbers, but, um, I think, you know, I don't think people think about that enough. They don't, they don't. So it's funny, the, when humans look at data, they have a very different perception of it than when they look at the metrics about the data. So for example, Mm. if you have a classifier for, five classes and you look at a 75% accurate classifier over all of those classes, it will look like garbage to you mm-hmm. as a human, even though that's, that's pretty high mm-hmm. um, relatively speaking. And you probably did some work to get it to that point. Right. You would probably still call it uh, a unacceptable option or a non-preferable right. classifier because that's, it looks like garbage to you. And I think, the cases where that garbage matters is where we have to worry about um, the way that we build hybrid into solving that last, that last component and getting to 99% or 95% or whatever we need to feel good about the application. For example, if we're predicting the health outcomes for a person, Mm -hmm. that's a very high stakes prediction. We would probably want to skew much further in uh, in the hybrid direction or in the human augmented right. direction than otherwise, because the stakes are actually very high. Mm-hmm. So I think when we start to discriminate between um, types of applications, that's where we see this coming in. But even for um, consumer applications like Google knowledge cards, things like that, mm-hmm. people still curate a lot of that information. It's not necessarily summaries that are generated by a computer. Sometimes there are people that, that are taught to um, create that data in a particular way. And um, I think we saw a great example of this a couple of weeks ago when uh, news about how Facebook curates uh, news right. articles came out. And that's a very good example of how your definitions of taxonomies, your acceptance of um how things are classified and your incorporation of new information mm-hmm. all impact your end user and sometimes in uh, in very critical ways. It might sway how someone votes. It might give someone a perception of, of the world that they otherwise might not have in that case. So um, I think we're starting to see the impacts as well from consumer applications that we thought were not so high in Mm -hmm. terms of risk. Um, And I look forward to seeing what they invest in um, at Facebook, because I think I, I would wager that they have people working on this that 
um, have an eye on how to make this better. But uh, at the end of the day, you do end up in in a semi-political discussion about what what fair and balanced means in journalism, right. and it, it becomes very domain specific. So mm-hmm. I I think it's it's healthy for society to grapple with that and for us to think very critically about how these things are actually working instead of just engineering them away uh-huh. and having a hundred percent machine solution. Um, are you aware of anyone, any groups working on the problem of hybrid, either from a, an academic, other academic research uh, topic areas in there somewhere or uh, tools, platforms, or is it, you know, everyone kind of figuring this out on their own, building their own custom thing. And that's just the state of the art right now. Um, so the short story is that a lot of companies do build their own custom um, platforms for for doing this. Right. Uh, they usually leverage some sort of marketplace for data entry, data annotation, question answering, um, and um, broader products. Like Amazon Turk is a very broad product. You can mm-hmm. arbitrarily give people tasks and you place a bid on Um, how much you would pay people for those tasks and they can choose to accept it. So a lot of companies will use that platform and build on top of it and um, do a lot of integration of of that type of system on the back end. So in some ways, you know, they call this artificial, artificial intelligence. In some ways, the, um, that component is actually a, a technology interface itself which is very interesting to think about because there right. there are people on the other side of um, on the other side of the technology, but there are a couple other vendors that do things to support hybrid. Uh, Crowdflower is one in San Francisco that does some some of that. Mm-hmm. Um, to my knowledge, they do inner observer uh, validation basically to right. give you multiple. Um, multiple sets of eyes on a given answer to a question to ensure that it's correct. So you don't have um, bigger sets of errors or unmeasurable error, and you know where uh, things are going to be more ambiguous. That in itself can be very valuable too, because you can, you can basically say, here's this big set of data um, or this big set of questions, let's say, how would you answer these questions and give it to multiple people? And you'll find out where people disagree. And that tells you more about the ambiguity of, of the problem space and where you're going to have to make stronger decisions about what you think is right. So that's been a a really helpful thing for clients to understand in the past. And um, I, I think they have a pretty good understanding of how that works and we'll see if they build more products around that. Mm -hmm. So, uh, do you have a, uh, are there, you know, a top three takeaways that, um, you know, cl- you found that clients, um, you know, as you look across a, a set of clients, you know, these are the top three things that, you know, they all, you know, either learned or need to learn in order to be successful at this stuff? Hmm. I can tell you the first one is always know what your question is. Uh-huh. Be be very precise and know exactly what the answer would look like if you saw it. So Mm. if you see the answer, you'll, you'll know that the right thing is happening. Um, I've certainly worked with companies that say, Hey, we have all this data. We want to learn from it. And I say, great. What do you want to learn? And they say anything. And so 
that's that's a perfectly healthy and normal place to start. But at that point, you don't have a question where you can build anything. So you have to formulate questions and decide mm-hmm. what's actually valuable for your business, which is more of a business and product space question um, formulation task. So that strategic involvement has necessarily become part of the business. Uh, coming from a product background, I can appreciate that. I think um, there are a lot of other independent consultants and people I know who work solely on um, questions after they've been fully formed. And they say, you know, once you have the specs ready, happy to work on it. But otherwise it's, it's not, um, it's not what we do. And that initial step of defining your question and knowing that uh, it's an appropriate question for the data, it really is the space where we, we thrive and uh, help our clients succeed. So if they can come in with, a strong understanding of what they have and what they want. That's always better. I think that's mm-hmm. true broadly in business, sure. but um, let me think what else. So I was just having a really good conversation over lunch with a couple people about how um, one of the things that we don't see as often in data science, machine learning land is uh, strong leadership that knows how to market really well. So, mm-hmm. A lot of what I've seen um, data science teams struggle with is marketing themselves internally or marketing themselves up and managing up to be at the C-suite or mm-hmm. the VP of engineering, whoever it is. And it's it's really important um, to develop those soft skills and understand what your value is rel- relative to the company. Sure. And I can say that, but at the end <laughs> of the day, it's actually extremely difficult to define that value because your systems may be giving some feedback to a business team that allows them to make better decisions, but really they're making their own decisions and they're supporting them with data in some cases, but you don't know what the investments would have looked like otherwise. And mm-hmm. so comparing the alternate universe that you might have been in had you not had the technology that your team is building can be extremely difficult to quantify, mm-hmm. but that is part of the work of, of leadership right? clearly. So um, I look forward to seeing more um, breakout leaders that are really good at that. And I think it'll necessarily be uh, something that we see in the next few years. Um, I I wouldn't call myself a pessimist, but I would say we're kind of high in the hype cycle right now. And I'm not (laughs) optimistic that we're going, the market will continue going up, so Mm -hmm. to speak. goes in a cycle of companies saying, hey, we're going to make this big investment in data science. We think that data science is a very valuable investment for us for these reasons. And then a couple of years later, they come back to the team and they say, so how have we done? Uh-huh. And at that point, the team really needs to sell what they've done. Ideally, they'd be selling that along the way as well. And I think we're coming to the end of one of those periods where uh, companies expect to see those big wins and teams really need to justify their existence and, mm-hmm. and be able to move the needle and describe how they're moving the needle. Yeah. Yeah. Soft mm-hmm. skills. Yes. Soft <laughs> skills. Soft skill. Yeah. Take that Venn diagram of all the things you are supposed to be as a data right. scientist, just add like four more things to it. <laughs> no problem. <laughs> yep. Nice. Nice. So that's two, but 
they're big. So yeah, well, and the third, the third is probably just managed expectations, right? Yes. Relative to always, human in the loop and, and any other, always. you know, any other of a number of sets of things in terms of the expectations. Always, you said you said it exactly right. Um, uh, yeah, managing the expectations is probably the biggest thing I do with clients. The first thing I say is, I can't do anything to pull a big win out of the hat. I, I won't be pulling a big win out of the hat for you. Um, if you still want to talk about this and you want to find out what this technology can do for you and how it can incrementally improve your business and create new opportunities for products, let's talk about that. But it's not going to surface anything that you don't know about your own business because frankly, you, you know about your business, your mm-hmm. business is in existence. So you must have some deeper understanding of what you're doing. And when I look at your, uh, your deal flow, your best customers are your best customers. I'm not going to tell uh-huh. you that there's there's a there's a sleeper whale somewhere deep inside Salesforce, um, and that's okay. Right, it can give you better confidence to make decisions and and understand the the differential value between things. But um, no promises. You really can't make promises. Yeah, absolutely. So. You know, going back to this conversation around uh, hybrid AI, we started to talk about, um, you know, the role that human humans in a loop play relative to, you know, their biases and, um, and you know, quote unquote, algorithmic bias and things like that, which actually that was the kickoff uh, panel here at, at mm-hmm. the Wrangell Conference. Um, is that, that's something that you're spending some time looking at now as well, right? Yes. So I, these things are all interwoven in some way. Uh, the active learning and, uh, human in the loop patterns of hybrid are, are certainly ways to combat actively reinforcing pre-existing bias. Uh, if you construct a system to do combat or amplify. Uh, or both if you you're can, not you careful. You can do either and both. <laughs> it depends on what you know about what you're doing, right? So if the example I give is uh, a model that was built at one of my previous employers where we wanted to predict who would start uh, a startup, uh, leave their job and start a startup within the next six months. And the company had an intent to build this model, create a list of people that were going to start companies soon. And... Uh, sell that list to investors as a type of pre-crime, basically algorithmic pre-crime for mm-hmm. seed stage funds. And um, they could get in early before people even knew that they were going to start companies, right. which is a, which is a like fascinating concept. So they used a number of factors to make this prediction, like where you had gone to college, what kind of degree you had, what your job title was, um, what your previous employers were, there was a bucketing for the prestige of your college. So, you know, the IVs were at the top and kind of cascaded down through bigger institutions and um, that included age. So what we ultimately saw when we predicted who would be a founder in the next six months was pretty interesting because uh, all of those factors seem to be directly relevant to how a person's career um, would develop them to be a founder in the future. And uh-huh. interestingly, a lot of the people on the list were 30-year-olds, management, ex-management consulting, um, or ex-iBankers, 
who were white males mm-hmm. and it didn't deviate too far from that. And at the time I, I thought, you know, this is, this is pretty uncomfortable, but I don't really know why. And it took me, it took me about a year to examine that uh, emotion a little more deeply. And underneath is actually a, a very good reason to be concerned because though you are making a prediction on characteristics that you, you think are fundamentally predictive of an outcome, they have bias uh, from the, the world rolled up into those factors. So all of the all of the decisions that were made to allow people to get to where they were and become founders in the previous uh, state of the world and the training data is, is your prior for your prediction of who will be mm-hmm. a future founder. And if you don't explicitly observe that, you know, I, I think I clicked through on LinkedIn to a, maybe the top 100, 120 people on this list. And that's the only way that I knew that there was a certain split of like where people came from um, in terms of home country or home state, where people came from in terms of um, in, in terms of um, age, all of these other characteristics, but even name can be ambiguous for what gender you are. So I didn't get a sense of who, was actually in this list until I went and looked at it and we didn't have columns that said male, female. We didn't test against that. We didn't predict on that, but there were only 13 women in, in uh-huh. at the top of the list right. or near the top of the list. And I thought, well, that's, that's somehow unfair. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think looking back on that at the time, it was, we were not talking about that, specific type of diversity, um, in the market for founders. Now that that conversation is happening more, it's become a more unambiguous case where you can say all of the priors, all of the pattern matching, so to speak, literally coming from VCs is, is being encoded into the algorithm that's making this ultimate prediction. And that's not okay. So Mm -hmm. the question then becomes, what do we do? And there are a couple of people doing really great work on this. Um, I think there's one department uh, at Carnegie Mellon where someone's coming up with validation metrics that will help you test against um, the the characteristics you know you might have um, biased outcomes on. Mm-hmm. So in this case, you would say, how many men and women are there in, in our outcome? Does it fit our expectation for... Um, what we would want to happen. And I think the, the real key insight here is that we want to build algorithms that will construct a world that we want to live in rather than a world that existed in the past. Mm -hmm. We know the flaws of our current society to a large extent and some people more than others, but as long as we can be vulnerable to one another, uh, and try and validate that we are not reinforcing uh, unjust actions from the past and just perpetuating them with algorithms in the future. That, that is actually key to our work. And that's really important for us to, um, 
carry as a torch going forward. So I'm very excited that um, we had uh, actually one talk so far and we will have another talk today about um, algorithmic bias and and harm and um, how these systems affect users. And I think it's a conversation that um, needs to gain more traction in uh, the practitioner space. And um, we need to examine our own practices much more closely and know what we're mm-hmm. doing. Um, perhaps the most egregious uh, example of this in the press lately was a an algorithm that uh, police police stations were using uh, across the country to predict recidivism, which right. um, this is the one is, that was exposed in the ProPublica article. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And they, they did a bunch of work that they put up on GitHub along with the data set to, mm-hmm. uh, to explain what, what was happening um, and how they had analyzed the, the outcomes. And as far as they, they could see what was happening in that technology. And I, I believe the company still, they're still holding it as private IP. So even, even the police departments don't understand how this model works. Um, The journalist did a really good job of saying, this is a big problem. Here's, here are the metrics and here's the full explanation with the data of what's so wrong with this beyond the anecdotal evidence of this is predicting that one person who is, has like committed one petty crime is more dangerous than someone who's a, a repeat criminal and right. has been violent like it's it's uh i think it's a really egregious case but i don't want to say that it's good that these things happen but i think a few high profile cases will push the regulatory system to mm-hmm. to become more serious about this so insofar as like it has to get worse before it gets better i'm i'm hoping that that we can get out ahead of that as practitioners but Regulation will certainly be getting there as more and more of these cases are uncovered. Do you have a vision for how regulation can play here without, you know, overly suppressing innovation, which is a big concern that you hear on the other side? It is. Um, And a good example of where you see that is in uh, loan assessment and um, the finance space where there are very strong regulations about how, um, how you make decisions about what credit lines people will get. So right. given again, like things that got worse before they got better redlining in the past and other actions that have been taken that were, that were deemed not legal after that, that environment has responded extremely strongly to that. There's a, um, there's a pretty good understanding of what it, what is important in making, um, that work transparent so that you can actually give someone feedback on why they were rejected for a loan or why they were given a certain loan amount um, mm-hmm. or a certain credit line. And while that's important, I think there are improvements further to be made. So I would expect that uh, if the regulation comes down really hard in the way that it has on that industry, if it comes down similarly on others, as I think we're seeing that you becoming interested in, then um, it can stifle innovation and probably grind it to a a very slow pace. But we're resilient. We'll figure out ways to justify our existence and how we do our work. And I think that's very healthy in the 
the ecosystem and the the ebb and flow of yeah. of these factors and uh, regulation and innovation are always battling it out and right. and right. uh the faster we can get out ahead of it and say, no, 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 we actually know what we're doing and we actually know how this works and we are justifying these things and we are taking the appropriate precautions and um, trying to be as self-critical as possible and doing so honestly. If we can do that, then the regulation um, will be, the the regulatory environment will be very different when it finally comes to bear in these other areas that aren't uh, just creditworthiness. Yeah. So. Great. Great. Well, we've got uh, additional talks here to yeah. go check out anything you want to leave folks with point folks to. I would say keep watching the, uh, the algorithmic harm and ethics uh, arena. There's a lot of work being done there and uh, there are people that are, are finding great solutions and people that are also of course, always coming out with more, critique and um, interesting philosophical perspectives to consider. So stay involved in that conversation because it's a, it's an active one and everyone can, can be part of it. Yeah, that's, that's great. And I think the, you know, your comment about, um, you know, AI encoding the future that we want, as opposed to the past that we, you know, that we know, uh, I think it's a great one. Um, very, uh, very optimistic. Yes, yes. If you care about that, stay involved in the conversation and, and uh, yeah, be a part of it. Great. All right. Thanks so much, Claire. <laughs> Thanks, Sam. All right, everyone, that's our show for today. I really hope you enjoyed the interview and thanks so much for listening. Of course, you can find the notes for this and every show at the TwimmelAI.com website, T-W-I-M-L-A-I.com. The notes for this particular show can be found at TwimmelAI.com slash 11, the number 11. As always, I really appreciate getting your tweets and emails and newsletter subscriptions and iTunes reviews. So by all means, keep them coming. Of course, we'd love to have you join the conversation. You can tweet me at Sam Charrington. Claire is Claire Corthell. And I'm also increasingly using the Twimmel AI Twitter handle, T-W-I-M-L-A-I. Looking forward to hearing from you and catch you next time.